Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, when we think about the 1950s, we tend to think of a very kind of safe and comfortable decade, don't we? We think of sort of, you know, village cricket and warm beer and we think of a kind of very what the Americans might call a mom-and-pop world, a very sort of kind of stable world in which everyone's behaving very nicely. But in fact, as my guest in this episode argues, certainly the early 1950s, and in particular 1953, were very, very dangerous years indeed. Now, his name is Roger Hermiston. I'm a huge fan of his because he wrote a, a fantastic biography of George Blake, and his new book, Two Minutes to Midnight, 1953, The Year of Living Dangerously, is another great read. And I'm really delighted to have him on the show because he's going to talk all about that year. Because it was a a massively dangerous year. You have this nuclear arms race entering this new and very frenzied phase. You've got Britain and the Soviet Union testing atom bombs, the US detonating a hydrogen bomb. That's a huge bomb. And then you've got this thing called the Doomsday Clock, which edges to two minutes to midnight for the first time. So actually, 1953 is a very dangerous place to be indeed. So anyway, without more from me, let's welcome Roger. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Guy, delighted to be with you. So why do we land on 1953 specifically? What is it that makes you wake up and go, that's the year we need to do? Well, I think you've alluded to it, really. The nuclear arms build-up was really starting to get into full swing. We'd had um, the, the Soviets had actually uh, successfully tested an atom bomb in 1949, much to the shock of the Western world, particularly the Americans, who thought it was going to be a, you know, a few years later. So we had that, and then Britain, determined to have our own nuclear device, uh, successfully tested one in October 1952. America then moved further ahead and tested a hydrogen bomb in November, 1st of November 1952. So we're on the cusp of 1953, and three of the big powers have all got the atomic bomb, and America have the hydrogen bomb. How aware were the general public of these detonations? I mean, did the man in the street, the woman in the street, did they know how different the hydrogen bomb was? Was that public knowledge? I'm not sure that there was much detail about the hydrogen bomb. I mean, the atom bomb, of course, everybody had been aware of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs at the end of the World War. And then the Soviet atom bomb was, you know, that was made public. Obviously, the Soviets made it public and that everyone became aware of that. And Churchill stood up in the House of Commons and proudly proclaimed that we now had the atom bomb in October 52. Now, the hydrogen bomb, President Truman, who sanctioned it, sort of briefly mentioned it or said we're going to go ahead with production of it in 1950 or 51. But really, the detonation when it came in November 52 out in the Marshall Islands was kept very, very quiet. And he alluded to it in his final speech as president in January 53. But the public didn't really get the full details, weren't really aware of that uh, significant development for another year. Could you tell me a little bit about this thing, the doomsday clock? I mean, I was born in, in 1971 and I was sort of aware growing up of this sort of thing, the doomsday clock, probably in about the late 70s, the 80s. But it really did come about at this time, did it? Yes. After the war in 1945, a group of scientists who had worked on the atom bomb program at Los Alamos got together and uh, formed an association and put together a magazine called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. They were very worried at what they'd unleashed, really, with the atom bomb. Uh, You know, they were against further advances on this front. 
for humanitarian technical reasons, but mainly for humanitarian reasons. You know, they, they saw the end of the world down the line if we didn't sort of rein in this nuclear arms race. So they came up with this artificial construct called the Doomsday Clock, and midnight is Armageddon. So the closer you get to midnight, the closer we get to the end of the world. And they're measuring at this stage anyway in its history basically nuclear arms, a nuclear arms race. And 1953, in, actually in August 1953, when the Soviets successfully tested their own thermonuclear device, they put the clock at two minutes to midnight. That's the title of my book, Two Minutes to Midnight, The Year of Living Dangerously. And that was the nearest we had been, in their view, to Armageddon, to the end of the world, in August 1953, which tells you a lot about the year and the fears and the worry and the paranoia that, that went through it. So do you know where we are on the doomsday clock today? Yeah, this is really interesting because for the rest of the Cold War, right the way through the Cold War, up until 2018, uh, 1953 was still the gold standard. That was two minutes to midnight. And remember, we'd had the Cuban Missile Crisis um, in 1962. We'd had an event called Able Archer, which was very nearly a, a war game that went wrong in 1983. We'd had events in the Cold War that you might argue were more worrying. But until 2018, when President Trump and King Jong-un squared off, um, it remained at two minutes to midnight. And then they moved it to two minutes to midnight in 2018 and guess where it is now it's actually now today the closest it's ever been it's at a hundred seconds to midnight <laughs> and that's in the judgment of the of this group of nuclear scientists the bulletin of atomic scientists because we now have a a dual threat not just the nuclear threat but climate change so you add climate change to the equation and we are actually i don't like to worry too many of our listeners but we are according to them the closest we've ever been to the to the end of it all one of the themes in, in the book of course is the fact that you know you've got the roots in 1953 of so many sort of present day troubles haven't you that that, that yeah. remain unresolved can, can you talk me through just some of the ones that you've identified yeah i can give you i'll give you five actually which i which i find really fascinating about the year as i began to examine it and found it so interesting. I mean, you've got the Korean War, number one, we just mentioned that. There was no peace settlement. There was only an armistice in 1953. They tried to uh, get a peace settlement in Geneva five or six months later and failed. So basically, the war is still going on. It's still unresolved, um, you know, technically. Um, then you've got Vietnam or Indochina, as it was called then. And towards the end of 53, the French are starting to get a bit of a beating from the Viet Minh. And uh, America is starting to pour lots of money and military observers into Indochina. And, you know, guess what happens in a few years' time? You've got Iran. There was a coup in Iran in 1953, um, engineered by the intelligence services of Britain and America, MI6 and the CIA. And look what that has led to in 1979, the Iranian Revolution and everything that follows Iran's suspicion of the West since then. And a couple more just to throw in. One, Europe. I mean, we know where we are with Europe now. <laughs> Let's not go there. Well, we won't go there for too long. But just to mention, in 1953, um, we were being urged to get involved with something called the European Coal and Steel Community, which is the sort of you know, economic um, European organisation. And, and also, I found very fascinating, something called the European Political Community, which, uh, you know, was a, a sort of federated Europe. And Churchill, of course, was having none of that. 
He said we are with them, referring to Europe, but not of them. And I think finally, the Falklands. Um, Churchill sent a warship to uh, the Falkland Islands, to a, a little island called Deception Island in 1953, because there'd been a sort of minor incursion by some Argentinians and Chileans. And we all know what happened to the Falkland Islands in 1982. So, you know, this is history, isn't it? History, echoes of yeah. history, history repeating itself. But I did find it interesting that you know, all those sort of narratives in 1953 stayed with us and some of them stay with us today. Very much so. And actually, the figure you mentioned there is a figure I'd like to talk to uh, now is about Churchill, of course, because you know yes. this is a ministry of Churchill's that can be overlooked. And there's obviously people obviously emphasise his wartime ministry. So what sort of figure did he cut at this stage? Well, Churchill is an old man in 1953. I mean, he's in his late 70s. He's not particularly well i'll come to that in a sec he's in a way and this is why eisenhower's criticism of him he's fighting the battles or he's rooted still in world war Two, and and he he feels that world problems can be solved by a bit of parlay as he called it a bit of chat between world leaders sitting down together as he did with stalin and roosevelt at the end of world war Two, and He's, um, you know, he, he's still he's still in that mindset. But what has changed about Churchill, and this is one of the big stories of 53, is that he is no longer a Cold War warrior. He is no longer the man who made the speech at Fulton, Missouri, about the Iron Curtain descending across Europe. You know, he, he is he has transformed. And it was probably the death of Stalin that finally, you know, was the final sort of um, leap. And, and remind us when Stalin dies. Well, this is, again, the vital thing of 1953. Stalin died on March the 5th, 1953. And Churchill believes the opportunity is now there. The great dictator is finally gone after, what was it, 30 years in power. There's a new regime in the Kremlin. And he was hell-bent on a policy no longer of hawkish Cold War behaviour, but of what he called, or what was called at the time, was easement, which essentially is the sort of detente of the 70s and 80s. He felt that we could try and do business with Moscow and we should reach out to them. So that was really his, his almost his great last campaign. But reaching out to Moscow is a perfectly sensible thing to do, of course, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, yeah. but Eisenhower didn't agree, did he? Absolutely not. I mean, the, the new American administration uh, came in in 53 was Dwight Eisenhower president and John Foster Dulles as his very hawkish secretary of state. John Foster Dulles, a real anti-communist and full of suspicion of anything that came out of the Kremlin. So Eisenhower and Dulles, if there were to be any sort of peace moves, peace agreements with Moscow, wanted to have a look at the fine print very, very closely. They didn't want to give the Kremlin an inch so they could take a mile. And they were very reluctant to you know, embark on um, summit meetings in Moscow or, or whatever. And they were always, and you can see this in the correspondence between Eisenhower and Churchill, they were always trying to caution Churchill not to head off, not to attempt to head off to Moscow, not to get too friendly. So very, very different approach. And that was one of the problems really in the in the, what used to be the special relationship in 1953. It's a kind of received wisdom that if Britain and the US are getting on, you know, maybe not necessarily today, but all is well in the world and things are much more secure. This is a kind of almost a sort of, I suppose, a sort of Cold War trope, if you like. But of course, yeah. there's a, a, presumably a, a sort of schism between uh, Washington and London. It, it is potentially dangerous, isn't it? I mean, you know, if, if the two sort of 
chief at the time Western allies aren't, aren't probably seeing eye to eye. That makes things a little bit more edgy, doesn't it? Yes, I think it did. It was never really, the schism never really happened. It certainly happened in private. And you can see that from all the correspondence between the protagonists. In public, we were still four square behind America. If there were statements to be made about Russian atomic tests or whatever, you know, you wouldn't see Churchill in public wavering for a moment. All his great speeches in 1953, very much again, allying himself to everything America did. But in private it's very very different and from eisenhower's point of view you know you read his diaries early in 1953 churchill goes over to visit him in new york and they have some talks ahead of his presidency and eisenhower is very scathing about churchill about fighting the battles of world war ii and eisenhower wanted him to be the bridge between america and europe he wanted britain to play a part in europe he wanted britain to join the European coal and steel community, uh, more importantly, something called the European Defence Community, which is essentially a sort of European army. He wanted some of the burden that America had been taking on her shoulders for the Cold War. He wanted Europe to play a more significant part and he wanted Churchill to facilitate that. And he was frustrated when Churchill kept, you know, harping back to, well, you you and I can do it together, Ike, you know, we'll we'll go off and meet Mr. Malenkov and so forth. So there was very much, uh, very much a difference of opinion. But as I say, in public, you wouldn't see that. No, of course. And and I suppose there's so, so much of what you write about in the book, of course, is the public, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have known about. But would they have known about any of these sort of shooting down of aeroplanes accidentally? Or, or the, you know, I think you mentioned that there's a, isn't it a British plane that shot down over Germany? <laughs> could, could you could you recall that? Yes, that was a very dangerous moment in this year, I think. It was a week after Stalin had died, March the 12th, and um, nobody quite knew what his successors were going to be like. We are waiting for sort of signs and signals from Moscow. And there'd been uh, already altercations in the air over Central Europe. An American uh, Thunderjet fighter bomber had been shot down a couple of days earlier. Uh, remember, too, that um, the air war in Korea, uh, there were American and Soviet planes fighting um, in the air over Korea at the time. So quite tense time. And, and this British bomber, this Avro Lincoln bomber, sets off on this day on a training mission across the length of the Iron Curtain, as it were, east and west Germany, and uh, veers over into the Soviet zone, comes back, but then gets shot down by two MiG fighters, these very fast, uh, very capable MiG fighters at the time. And seven members of the British crew, all seven members, are killed. And also it's suggested that four of them died immediately in the burning fuselage. It's suggested that two of them were actually shot down by the MiGs as they left the scene, two of them, as they were descending by parachute. So you can imagine the sort of scene. Now, all this does come out. Yes, you can read the newspaper reports the next day. It's headlines all over the world, um, and it's considered a really dangerous moment in the Cold War, and Amer particularly in America, I think, where the politicians are saying, you know, you can't have the Soviets shooting down one of our planes. Okay, not an American plane, but they'd nearly, you know, nearly been shot down there. They had been shot down a couple of days earlier. So it is a big international incident, condemned by Churchill, defended by the Soviets, who, who said that, you know, they you were shooting at us, so it was a it was a dangerous moment. I mean, was there a feeling, uh oh, this is going to be World War Three? 
I don't think it ever quite came to that. Having said that, if you do read the American reports of the incident, you know, you'll see people like um, the Speaker of the House Armed Services Committee, Joseph Martin, saying, you know, we should shoot the hell out of them. And uh, someone else, I think, in the Republicans saying we can't allow them to continue to raid our territory without doing something about it. So in Britain, I think after the initial harsh words come out, I, th I think we settle down a bit and they try and reach some sort of agreement about where the plane should be in the, the so-called Berlin Air Corridors, uh, which was set up at the end of World War II. And uh, it, you reach a compromise of sorts. But yeah, I'd say for one moment, things looking quite dangerous for a day or two. Yeah, I mean, it's not a plot spoiler to say that, that the world didn't uh, disappear in a nuclear <laughs> Armageddon or that there hasn't been touch with a World War Three. But I think that one of the also things that strikes me about the book is the fact that, and I think you note it nicely, is that there are these sort of parallels between certain figures from 1953 and, and with figures from today as well. There's another sort of element of the book that struck me. Yeah, I, I actually really like the parallel between Joe McCarthy and Donald Trump. Now, Joe McCarthy is a key figure in my book. He's a sort of communist witch hunter in chief in America, rooting out all communists in government and in America. Very charismatic figure. And I, I was thinking about the two of them, and I was thinking of the parallels are quite uncanny in some ways. Here, here you have two men, both charismatic demagogues, very effective speakers, rabble-rousers, if you like, of the baser instincts of the electorate. Um, they both exploited a situation of anxiety within the American public. I mean, McCarthy with communism, but Trump with unemployment and economic distress, particularly in the Rust Belt states. They both set up demons in order to slay them. You know, McCarthy with communists, Trump with Mexicans and Muslims. And perhaps you know, interesting to former journalists like myself, they were both master manipulators of the media. I mean, in 1953, McCarthy had the mainstream media in his thrall, in his hands. Of course, with Trump, it was social media with his Twitter account. I mean, he did have his news channel, Fox, which was almost effectively his own news channel. But they were both very, very good manipulators of the press. And I think finally, they both in a different ways railed against America's corrupt elites. I mean, as you know, Trump's famous, I want to drain the Washington swamp. And McCarthy's loathing was with specifically with the State Department in Washington, that, that aspect of government. So I think those are the very interesting parallels and that there was a final link between them in that they shared the same lawyer called Roy Cohn, who was McCarthy's brash, aggressive young <laughs> lawyer. extraordinary link all the way back to that. Yeah, in 53. And um, 20, 30 years later, after Cohn had retired to New York to work as an attorney in New York, who should hire him? But Donald Trump, and apparently he he helped Trump in getting Trump Tower built because he squared the Teamsters Union, who had a sort of mobster element to it. It's a great story, really. <laughs> and I suppose the other, I mean, I, I live near Salisbury, which, of course, is near this place, Port and Down, which has been in the news a lot, not only for yeah. helping with COVID, but also with the uh, whole Skripal attempted murders and identifying Novichok. But Port and Down looms very large where we live, but also, you know, it's of, of, sort of national importance. But this features in your book as well, doesn't it, Port and Down? It does. I mean, I think you've got to give credit to Port and Down from what you hear these days for the, 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 mm. the effort they make in studying dangerous viruses. But in, in 1953, Britain, as well as a 
having the uh, you know the biggest weapon of mass destruction, the A bomb, we're also pursuing a chemical and biological warfare program. And Porton Down, which was called, I think, the Chemical Defense Experimental Establishment in '53, was experimenting with all sorts of things, including a nerve agent called sarin, which uh, is not <laughs> not a pleasant thing. But they had a series of experiments going on there. They advertised amongst the services for volunteers to come and help research into find a cure for the common cold. So they were summoned to Porton Down and they were given tests. Some of them were placed in, in gas chambers. Some were given the, this nerve agent in very small amounts by liquid on their sleeve, on their uniform, but also on their arm. So these quite dangerous experiments, you would think, were going on um, in 1953. And in May 1953, a chap called Ronald Madison, who was an aircraftsman, lost his life in one of these experiments. And um, the government had to embark on on really quite a quite a cover-up really to make sure that the public didn't really get to know the details of it there had to be an inquest but that was held in secret and there had to be uh, inquiries which were never published so if you looked for a newspaper account of, of the inquest or, or any more detail of this death and it was quite shocking really um, you'd find very little of it and it resurfaced 10 20 years ago when all the servicemen who'd been through these experiments got together and, and, and formed a sort of unit and, um, and, and wanted compensation. A lot of them had, had, had suffered some illness and, and ill health and, and the Madison inquest was actually reopened, you know, 10 or 15 years ago and eventually it was found to have been an unlawful killing. So that's another example of 53 having this, this long tail, I suppose. Yeah, I, I hadn't mentioned that earlier, but absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I just one final question is... As a historian, it's always very tempting to sort of apply the wisdom of hindsight and think, oh, no, you shouldn't have done that, you silly politician, you silly world leader, blah, blah, blah. But do you, I mean, do you think generally that the the world statesmen, the world leaders kind of behaved ultimately with credit in this very dangerous year? Do you know, that's a really good question. And um, I think that obviously you have to try and frame it in the time it was rather than using hindsight. I mean, the reality is, of course, that there was no significant, really dangerous moment. There was progress made. You know, the Korean War, for example, you know, there was an armistice. OK, we didn't have a peace agreement. I think Eisenhower and Churchill were men of good faith. They were remarkable statesmen in their different ways. I mean, Eisenhower may have contemplated using the atom bomb to bring the Korean War to an end and so forth. But I think they did. I think they did a reasonable job in '53. It's a, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think they did a reasonable job, and I applaud Churchill. Particular, well, I applaud Churchill for wanting. People around him thought it was unrealistic, and he was an old man in a hurry who just wanted his legacy to to, to be enhanced. But I think he genuinely wanted to try and pursue peace, and um, I, I think it was a quite a noble sort of enterprise on his part. Great. Well, I'm I'm delighted they've passed the Hermiston test. The, uh, it sounds like you're giving them a kind of seven out of ten or something like that. So I'll sort of, <laughs> yes. a, a B, perhaps. Well, look, Roger, your book Two Minutes to Midnight that really passes my test. It's it's a it's a fantastic read. It really is. So thank you so much for coming on today, Guy. Thank you very much for having me. And that is it for today. And I really hope you've enjoyed this latest episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe to us. 
Plenty of ways to do that on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify, or of course, you can listen on the Mail Plus app. You can also catch up at Mail Plus on Twitter. And of course, you can catch up with me on Twitter at Guy Walters. In the meantime, many thanks. Thanks.